0: biblical illiteracy but illiteracy and also it's no shock that the printing press and the reformation were very good friends dark times lie ahead if the people of god felt to be the best readers of the word of god that they can be so the scriptures are meant to be meditated on thought on analyzed and especially a sentence like this that we have in three through twelve Sometimes the meaning is easily gleaned from a portion of Scripture. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The meaning of that text is very apparent and clear, can be grasped quite readily, and yet you could draw depths from that verse for the rest of your life. It's, it's a verse that you can chew really quickly and then digest slowly. Now, a passage like this is one that you chew very slowly and digest very slowly. And what I hope you see is that it's worth the chewing. The sentence has three parts. Verses three through five center on the future inheritance of the saints. Verses six through nine relate to our present, or relate this to our present suffering. And then verses 10 through 12 tie that into this revelation that we've received through the apostles and the prophets. The prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New. And so we're going to go about eating this elephantine text the way the sages have long advised. Chunk by chunk. This morning, verses 3 and 5. But as we... Eat this elephant. Let's keep reminding ourselves of the elephant that we are eating. In other words, I think to to best deal with this text, we have to act like a good butcher and connoisseur. We have to break apart the text, knowing what we're breaking apart, knowing where to put the pressure to, to separate the carcass just right and know how this cut relates to that cut. We have to understand the butcher process and the cuts and how they relate to the whole, and also act as good connoisseurs and savor and relish what we're chewing on. So after his greeting, Peter erupts in praise, verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. What evokes this praise, this doxology? That's what, uh, doxology means praise. What what evokes this doxology in Peter? Is it what he has said concerning these elect exiles who are elect according to the foreknowledge of God and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood? Is is that what's brought forth this praise or is is it what follows? And I think verse 3 makes it clear whenever Goes on to, in this single sentence, say, According to his great mercies caused us to be born again. It's what follows that's caused Peter to praise in this way. But what you'll see is that what follows is deeply related to those truths that we meditated on last week contained in, in the greeting in verses one and two. Either way you go, forward or backward, you have to understand this that this doxology erupts out of theology. Peter praises God for what he has done, but it's not the kind of praise of, I had a great week. There's a deep theological foundation upon which Peter's praise rests. Before we go any further into that, though, let's look at the praise itself. Blessed. Blessed has a different meaning depending on which way the traffic's going. Same sign. But if you're traveling one way, it means something different than if you're traveling the other. If the traffic is going from God to us, blessed means one thing. If it's going from us to God, it means another. So number six is the passage that you you should have in the back of your mind to understand what it means whenever it's flowing from God to us. There, Aaron was instructed to bless the people in this way. May Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace. To be blessed, the word simply meant happiness, but not in some kind of shallow way. And, and some people get uncomfortable. Oh, you ought to say joy or, 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 or something. Well, no, I simply mean happiness, joy. Uh, however, uh, these can be synonymous, but the point is it's not in something so fickle. The central joy from which everything else flowed and everything was attached to for, for true blessedness is God Himself. It's it's this relationship with Him. Yes, it means that you're in good fortune with God, that you're fortunate and blessed and happy in that sense, but, but the, the idea is that the favor of God, this relationship to where one is reconciled with God, one, one has this knowledge of God as Father and Lord and Savior, that in and of itself is the, the blessedness of being blessed by God. And as you consider God in himself, blessed still carries something of that meaning. 1 Timothy 1.11 tells us that our God is the blessed God. He's the happy God, perfectly delighted in himself as each member of the Trinity, each person of the Trinity takes joy in the infinite, inexhaustible perfections of the other members of the Trinity. But whenever the traffic flows from man to God, the meaning changes and it means simply praise. See, Peter is not adding to God's joy here. God has added to Peter's. That's why he's praising. Our praise doesn't fill some kind of void in God. Our God is not so needy. C.S. Lewis deals with what he calls the problem of praise. Whenever God demands praise, it may seem as though he's asking for praise reassurances of His excellencies. We despise this in a man. Why is it different with God? And one of the answers that Lewis gave is this. The most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless, sometimes even if, shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought in to check it. The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wine, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, and even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time most balanced and capacious minds praised most, while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. And he goes on to say, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because... The praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. Do you see, I see such a consummation of joy here in Peter. It's, 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 it's not simply the expression of the joy, it's the joy itself in this, this word of blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, whenever the child plays at the ocean and the ocean fills the child's bucket and the the child then takes that bucket to pour it back into the ocean, the child hasn't added anything to the ocean. The ocean is added to the child's joy. And likewise, whenever God's, the infinite ocean of God's grace, whenever a stream of that pours down upon us, and we return it back in praise. We haven't add, added anything to the ocean of God's joy in God. Rather, His joy has become ours. We simply return the flow. We bless because we are blessed. The traffic doesn't flow the same way on the, both sides of the street. He's the fountain. All comes from Him and through Him uh, and to Him. So, you see our praise itself. You you see it with Peter here. Our praise is part of our blessedness. It's because we're blessed that we praise. Now, which God is it that Peter praises? It's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a crucial and critical distinction. And in our days of spiritual haze, it's one that we cannot be too careful to make. That we praise the God who is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such praise. This is the only way praise can be offered. No Christ, no praise. There is no blessed be God if there is no God who's the father of Jesus Christ. There's no good news. Calvin comments, for us formerly, by calling himself the God of Abraham. He designed to mark the difference between him and all fictitious gods. So after he's manifested himself in his own son, his, so after He's manifested Himself in His own Son, His will is not to be known otherwise than in Him. Hence, they who form their ideas of God in His naked majesty apart from Christ have an idol instead of the true God, as is the case with the Jews and the Turks. Whoever then seeks really to know the only true God must regard Him as the Father of Christ. There's no knowledge of the true God except in Christ. And only in Christ can you know Him such a way that you would exclaim to Him, Blessed be His name. Because blessedness only happens in Jesus, blessings to God, only hap- uh, 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 true blessings to God go through Go to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ has caused us, verse 3, to be born again. We call this the new birth or regeneration. And notice it's something that God causes. God causes us, causes it. We, We don't help Him, He causes it. We call this monergism. This isn't synergism. This isn't something where we partner with God and we bring about and and we do this in, in turns. This is something God causes monergistically, mono, one, energy. God causes us to be born again. Now let me tease out the way that works. Most evangelicals today think that we believe. And then as a consequent of that belief, we're born again. That is not historically what most Protestants have believed. It's not historically what Baptists have believed. We believe because we're born again, 1 John 5, 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, that's present tense. If you believe Jesus is the Christ, here's what happened. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been Born of God, not will be, not at that moment is, but if you believe, you here's the reason why you have been born of God. In his greeting, Peter told them that they were elect exiles, among other things, for obedience to Jesus Christ. You were elect, you were chosen for obedience. And we saw how that obedience to Jesus Christ is the obedience Paul speaks of throughout Romans, the obedience of faith. You were chosen for faith. And now you're seeing, with this phrase, how that faith comes to be. Because God causes you to be born again, and if you're born again... You believe. The heart, the new heart that you're given in rebirth and regeneration beats with faith and repentance. So the new birth has to come before belief because it's the cause of belief. Before the new birth, you are in your flesh. And you cannot please God. Romans 8. The mind that is set on the flesh... uh, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, and it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot... Please God. We go to Hebrews 11 and we see that faith pleases God. If you're in the flesh, you can't please Him. That means you cannot have faith. This is why Jesus said, No one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Coming is believing. And you can't do that unless it's granted, unless it's a gift, unless it's given to you by the Father. And the Father's giving that is the new birth, which He causes. We call this causing, God causing this new birth, we call it the effectual call. There's a general call that happens any time the gospel is preached. A general call to all who have heard that word to believe and repent. But within that general call that happens as man proclaims the gospel, there's an effectual call of the Father by the Spirit to His elect, to those that He chose, whereby He causes the new birth. So the Father calls and He calls through the gospel, 2 Thessalonians 2.14. To this He called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see how that's near synonymous with our present passage. To this He called you, that's the same as causing you to be born again. He called you, He called you through the gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Obtaining that glory is the same thing as this living hope and inheritance that are spoken of here. He called you through the preaching of the gospel to this glory, to this hope, to this inheritance. Whenever God sends forth His word, know that it accomplishes His purpose. Isaiah 55, as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. What is the purpose to which God sends forth his word? To gather in his elect. Let me show you this. Let me just hit you with a barrage of text here. And I want you to notice how often Calling and election are put together in the Scriptures. So let's return to 2 Thessalonians, but let's catch the verse before it. We ought always to give thanks to God for you. So here's Paul thanking God for these Thessalonians. He says, I'm not thanking you, I'm thanking God for you. Why is he thanking God for them? We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first of To be saved. He chose you as the first fruits to be saved. He didn't didn't choose you in some kind of general way. He chose you to be saved. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this, to this salvation, He called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He chose you to be saved, and then He called you to that salvation He chose you for. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 and 27. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Do you see how He just interchanged Calling and choosing as though these could be ex- just replace one with the other, not that they're the same thing, but that if he called you, it means you're chosen, and if you're chosen, it means he calls you. He didn't call many wise, many powerful, but he chose the foolish and the weak. Second Timothy 1: nine God saved us and called. Us to a holy calling. Did you see how salvation and calling were put parallel there with one another? He saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of His purpose and grace. Read, because of His purpose here election. His purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Listen to a sentence fragment from Galatians 1.15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born, there's election, and called me by his grace. And then finally there's that well-known passage in Romans 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now assumed in that order is the word all, or else it's not a very comforting text, is it? Some that He predestined, He called, and some that He called, He justified, and some that He justified, He glorified. It all falls apart if you put some, you see. All that He predestined, He called. And all that He called, not some, all that He called, here's the group that are called, and every one of them, justified. And all that he justified, glorified. You see how this same order goes with our text, this living hope. This glorification is tied into that. You're born again to a living hope, and you're born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You're born again to this living hope through the resurrection of Christ. I think we rightly, because of 1 Corinthians 15, so often associate... Uh, Jesus' resurrection with our resurrection we make that connection because Jesus rose we're going to rise but have you ever made this connection because Jesus rose those he was in union with those that he represented those that he died for when Jesus rose they will be born again when Jesus rose, He rose with resurrection life for all those that He were, was in union with. Those all, all those that He died for. And whenever you're born again, you're born again with resurrection life. The resurrection life of Christ. Because the new birth is put in terms of, of one who was formerly dead in their sins. Now coming alive. That's what's happening in the new birth. It's the same thing as what Ephesians 2, 4, and 5 tell, tell us whenever... Uh, Paul says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God, because of His great mercy, made us alive together with Christ when He raised Him from the dead. The power that's behind your new birth, that is just waiting for God to say to the Holy Spirit, plug Him into it, the power that's there was completely stored and ready at the resurrection of Jesus. when jesus rose the new birth was certain for the elect and now do you see how we've gone from monergistic regeneration with the foundation of election underlying it to the truth of definite atonement You were born again to this living hope through Jesus' resurrection. That's definite atonement. And it goes back to our greeting again. You are an elect exile for sprinkling with His blood. God chose you for sprinkling with His blood. Whenever Jesus died on the cross for the elect, Every part of their salvation was completely, and he rose. Whenever he died and rose, all of his living, whenever Jesus said, it is finished, and whenever he rose from the grave, he'd accomplished everything. All of their salvation is found in Christ. Nothing is lacking. He said, the angel said to Joseph that his name is Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And whenever he finished This, Whenever He rose and ascended and He's at the right hand of the Father, there's nothing nothing lacking in that. The job's done. He saved them. What happens in time is simply the application by the Spirit of everything Christ has accomplished to His people. It's the same way that you see in verse 5. There's the salvation that's ready. It's talking about the future salvation that that we haven't entered into yet, that's part of this inheritance and this living hope, that that salvation is ready for you. It's ready. It's already there. It's ready. And what's lacking is simply for the time ordained of the Father for you to enter into the fullness of that salvation. And what happened with Jesus' death and resurrection and His ascension and and Christ and all all our salvation that's in Him, it's ready. It's all in Him. And what happens with the new birth is that the Father decides to call it by telling the Spirit to apply the merits and goodness and and put us into living union with Christ so that at that moment we begin in our experience to know the salvation that's completely in Christ. You're born again to a living hope. See, the dead were reborn through the resurrection, to a living hope. You see this transition from death to life. And this hope is parallel with this inheritance, and living is parallel with imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Now, hope can refer either to our subjective attitude. We hope, we have a hope, and we hope. So it can be subjective or the subjective reality. We hope, and we hope in this hope. It's used in that objective sense here. What is our hope? What, what is this inheritance? And again, Peter is using this language from the Old Testament, applying it to this largely Gentile audience. In Genesis 12:7, God promised Abraham to his offspring the land that he sojourned in. And that land, again and again throughout the Old Testament, is referred to as their inheritance. Whenever the land was divided up by tribe and by clan, they were receiving their allotted inheritance. And central to this was that this land was the place where God would dwell with His people. This was to be an echo of Eden, lost, and a whisper of the new earth, hoped for. Galatians 3.18 says that this inheritance promised to Abraham's offspring doesn't come but by the law, but by promise. And then it says that if you are Christ, you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. Which promise? The promise made to Abraham. You're an heir of it if you're in Christ. That's the promise behind Jesus' beatitude. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is why Paul supersizes the promise of Canaan to the size of the globe. Saying the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. Romans 4.13 Do you see why Paul is using this terminology and how it relates back to elect exiles? This living hope, this inheritance is the land that we long for. Not the world as it is, but the world as it should be, as it will be. And then he gives us three adjectives and one adjective phrase to describe this inheritance. It is imperishable. The world as it is is perishing. It's going the way of the people of this world. Or rather we should say that this world is following the way of the people of this world. The people are perishing and the world is under their feet following with it. Second Peter three ten through 13 speaks of both this world and the world to come. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you ought to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for, a, for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. And that leads into the second descriptor that this inheritance is undefiled, it's a land where righteousness dwells, sin has no stain in it. And then consider that in relation to the next one, that this, this inheritance is unfading. That means that sin never will stain it. It's sin which causes the, this, which is brought about the curse of God, which causes this decay and this, 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 uh, this rot, this fading. But here's an inheritance that's unfading. Sin has never defiled it, it never will. Its, it's mark will never Never defile our inheritance. And then fourth, this inheritance is kept in heaven. Now the word for kept here is used in the same way that Adam was told to keep the garden. Meaning guard it, protect it. But here, this is not not a garden that we need to keep. This is a garden that's kept for us. And yet, does this not make you recall Jesus' words, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. You don't need to keep this treasure but you're told where you need to put your treasure. Not only is this inheritance kept for us, we're kept for this inheritance. Verse 5. You, who by God's power are being guarded, kept, protected, through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You're being guarded by God's power and the the means through which God is guarding you for that salvation is faith. You are guarded on your pilgrimage through faith to the inheritance that awaits you. You see two doctrines put side by side here that always go hand in hand. You see the doctrine of the preservation of the saints And the perseverance of the saints. And what you see is that the saints persevere in the faith. They keep faith because God guards them in the faith. Unfortunately, in Baptist circles, even in this area at large, this is often watered down to the statement, Once saved, always saved. Or security of the believer. While that phrase is absolutely true, it can be used as a mask for a lie. Oh, you've walked the aisle. Soul is good. Your indulgence has been purchased. No. The doctrine of the preservation and perseverance of the saints doesn't say less than once saved, always saved. It says something much more. It says, and it it keeps, it guards... The truth against the lie. Settling for saying once saved, always saved, is like desiring to call your spouse a woman instead of my wife. The latter phrase says everything the former one does, and much more. Now, our living hope is our inheritance, and it's spoken of here as a salvation ready to be revealed. Whenever we hear salvation, we'll think about our regeneration or our conversion. But the language of Scripture is so much more robust. Just, just uh, type into your, your Bible search app or grab a concordance and look at all the uses of salvation and make, make a, a chart and do past, present, future. And you'll see that salvation dots them all. And you'll find out that a huge chunk of them, if not the majority, are actually, actually future. Do we not see this in the Psalms whenever it talks about our salvation, our deliverance again and again, being that day when, on, on which evil is judged and dealt with? And so we're, we were saved, we're being saved, and we will be saved, and the language of our salvation reaches all the way back into eternity past with the election of the Father. And it reaches all the way into the future, to that salvation that's being guarded and kept for us, which we are being kept for. So can you see why the sentence is so long? We're just looking at the first part of it. But can you see why the sentence is so long? It reaches all the way back into eternity past. It has its roots there. It anticipates inter- eternity future, our eternal hope. Election, regeneration, effectual calling, definite atonement, the preservation and perseverance of the saints are all covered here, and we've just dealt with a fragment of this sentence. This sentence fragment might be the most concentrated Calvinistic sentence in the Scriptures. And so having reflected on it, can you not see why J.I. Packer would say that there's really just one point to Calvinism? God saves Sinners. And having reflected on these blessed truths, can you see why it is that Peter would begin, before he even unfolds any of them, by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Whenever we fight for such theology, we're fighting for doxology. Doxology. We're fighting to sing. We're fighting for God to get the full glory due to His name and for our joy therefore in Him to be full. And also whenever we fight for strong doctrine, we're fighting for strong faith. Weak doctrine produces weak faith. An election emptied of all meaning, a limp-wristed calling, a new birth where you're the one who decisively delivers yourself, an atonement that can only hope but doesn't actually achieve, will produce the kind of faith that you'd expect to go with such impotent doctrines. If you want a faith that will persevere through trials and suffering, such as Peter is calling for, if you want a faith that will sing through suffering of the sovereignty of the Savior, if you want that kind of faith, well, build it on what Peter does here in this letter. Unconditional election, monergistic regeneration, effectual calling, definite atonement, the perseverance of the saints. Chew on the hard sentences of Scripture like those truths, and you'll have plenty of nutrients to draw from through the drought and famine so that your song will not be quenched. Rather, if you're chewing on the hard sentences of the Bible, you can't help but belch praise. And the center of this blessed inheritance, again, is our triune God. And if He be for us, who can be against us? Do you see that these are the the very truths that led Paul to state, make that statement? Listen again, Romans 8. We know For I'm sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father, praise be to you for what you've given in Christ, for what you cause, and for what you keep. And what you promise. May our hearts erupt with praise now. Having considered these truths. Such that through our faith. That you're causing and keeping us in. Even through trials we keep on singing. In Jesus name may it be so. Amen.